0: Welcome to the Intriguing Beings Podcast with me, Ru Chater. Episode 16 with Ian Young. Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are on the planet, or even good evening. I hope you're all well. I'm still travelling around at the moment. It feels like I've been on the road for ages. I had a week or so at home at Christmas, but since then I've been down to Nuki catching up with uh, one of my previous podcasts entertainers Don Moore for New Year's Eve and then since then I've been working my way back along the south coast popped into Swanage and just been down in Chichester interviewing a chap called Dan McCauley who you'll get to listen to in a few weeks time. Bizarrely enough I'm recording this intro sat in the Ford Transit custom van actually on Hailing Island Beach where I first started recording these podcasts when I did the first one with Dave Hastelow at the kite surfing armada some time ago so it's funny how the world revolves and you end up back in the same places sometimes. I'm off on Wednesday to New York. I'm hoping to get a couple of podcasts done whilst I'm over there. And then I head out to South Africa for a big trip. And I'm going to spend about six weeks over in Cape Town. Going to hopefully hook up with lots of people over there to get more of this content for you. So I'm looking forward to that. And it should be a bit of a gold mine in terms of racking and stacking some episodes for the rest of the year. This week, I've got a really interesting guy by the name of Ian Young. Now, i had heard of Ian and I'd also driven past his house a few times. Whilst I was staying down with Tim Turner of the Red Bull Lighthouse to Leighton race in Perth, he mentioned I should try and hook up with Ian. And then when I was staying with my friends at the Lancelin Lodge up in Lancelin, they also said I should hook up with Ian. So I figured if two people are telling me, then that's obviously a sign that I should have a chat with him. Now, Ian's a really interesting character. He was in the Special Forces for about 20 years. He started surfing from a young age, grew up on the coast in Queensland, and then travelled around a lot with the army. Uh, His dad was in the forces, and then obviously himself as well. And he ended up settling on the west coast of Australia in Perth. And he's had a very interesting career, not only as an artist, which was something that used to give him a bit of solace whilst he was busy. Um, dealing with all the the fun and games of being in the army I guess it was his way of relaxing and um, finding peace I guess but also he was one of the first kite surfers in Australia or the first kite surfer in Australia to give him his full credit he was starting to fly kites in the 80s and he was using buggies and then he realized that he might be able to do quite well with his surf ski with a kite so he started developing his own kites and experimenting with those and then by chance he hooked up with um, someone who had told him about Corey Rosler who was the infamous water skiing kite surfer um, who was probably the the father of the sport if you go way back and he managed to get hold of some kit from Corey and the rest as they say is history. He went on to set up a kite surfing school and taught thousands of people on the west coast of Australia and he now lives in a very eclectic house um, just off the beach in Lancelin. If you're ever up in Lancelin you'll spot it, it's the one with a surfboard fence And part of his art is he repurposes old surfboards and windsurfing boards and things like that. So when you go around his house, there's some incredible um, sculptures, including the surfboard spiral shower. Um, But Ian was a really interesting guest and I hadn't met him before. So I had to have a quick chat beforehand and just find out a little bit about him so I could come up with some questions as we went along. But as you're here, we chatted for about forty-five minutes, and you know I discovered some incredible stories and some really interesting things about Ian. So I'm hoping you're going to enjoy this one. Uh, it was recorded in his garden, so please forgive the uh, the odd birds tweeting away and the sound of a few cars driving past because it was outside and he's not that far from. Um, one of the major roads in Lancelyn, although a major road in Lancelin is probably one of the quietest roads on the planet. Anyway I really hope you enjoy it as ever a bit of housekeeping please give these a like and a share it really helps when you tell people about it if you're on any kiteboarding forums or kiteboarding whatsapp groups or anything like that please let people know that these podcasts are out there because the more people listen to them the more it inspires me to keep making them. Anyway let's get into this week's episode with Ian Young. Today I'm sat with an interesting gentleman who I've been told I need to come and chat to, so I'm quite interested to see what we, um, what we come up with in this podcast. His name's Ian Young, and he's an Australian guy who's living up in Lancelin, and if you ever come to Lancelin, you won't miss his house. It's the one with the surfboard fence. There's literally loads of surfboards all around the place, and I'll put a few pictures on the, the post so you can see some of those because it's quite an incredible spot. He's an artist um, and he's had quite an interesting life, but he's also one of the first, well, the first kite surfer in Australia, basically. And his story dates back to sort of long before most of you are listening. To this probably started kiteboarding. So, Ian, my first question: How did you get into water sports? In the first place were you a surfer originally back in the day being australian
1: yeah i was surfing and uh windsurfing in the 80s yeah and uh yeah then i broke my ribs uh, playing rugby and then uh, found paddle surfing was a bit too much of a a painful experience so then i took up uh, wave skiing but yeah i've always been around the water even since i was a little kid i wanted to surf but my parents wouldn't buy me a surfboard in those days, so it wasn't <laughs> until after I joined the army at sixteen that I bought my first surfboard. But, uh, yeah, the first paycheck.
0: Yeah, 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 pretty well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What side? Of, what whereabouts in Australia were you originally?
1: Uh, well, my father was in the army, okay. And so uh, you know, we travelled. You know, every two or three years we moved, and then, I, as I said, I joined the army at sixteen. So then I was moving every two or three years. But then I, I married a Western Australian lady and uh, fell in love with Western Australia. So. Uh, Certainly since uh, well, the early 80s, I've been uh, trying to spend as much time in Western Australia. And, and I got out of the Army in 99 and basically been living in
0: Western Australia since. Okay. And did you have um, quite an interesting career in the Army? How long were you in it for?
1: Yeah, I was in the Army for 22 years. Um, most of that good was in the Special Forces and, yeah. and uh, as a communications officer. But um, I was uh, very qualified, as they say, or in the Brits, they call you badged. Yeah, uh, so you know, had to do a lot of different stuff, you know, jumping out of planes and helicopters, and must have seemed to obviously at countries. that time because during that well, period, it was, there was mainly peacetime soldiering. To be honest, I, I was actually one of the lucky ones. Uh, I got deployed to Somalia and did a short stint in Rwanda, and uh, in the Persian Gulf. So, uh, yeah, but I, I was out by the time Afghanistan kicked in, and yeah, I actually did go to East Timor, but it was working for the United Nations. So, uh,
0: yeah, did you ever get to surf when you were out? On those trips? Uh, <laughs> only East Timor. Okay.
1: In, in fact, uh, yeah, I, I took a, a rig that I got from Raphael Sales. Oh, ah, yeah. You know and, Raphael, uh, yeah. Really yeah. well. Nice guy. So that would have been in 90, 98, I think, he came out. Okay. And uh, so I took him to Margaret market river and we were the first ones to kite market river. Okay. And uh, I had a jet ski that I used to teach kite surfing with in those days. So we did a film shoot down there. And uh, I still haven't seen the raw footage. I'd, I'd love to track him down and, and get a hold of the I've footage. I've got his email. Days. I'll pass it yeah, on to yeah. you. <laughs> well, I have, I have actually sent him emails asking, but uh, yeah, sadly, he never responded. But Maybe um, the camera got wet or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it could that, have got forgot been. to could press record. That's yeah. often
0: the case. If you're like, can I get the raw footage? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'll send it to you. And probably <laughs> something went wrong somewhere.
1: Yeah. But anyway, I had uh, it was uh, actually a foil kite, but it was uh, one of his F1s. And um, yeah, it was quite interesting. So you packed that up and but took it, it to two, East Timor with you. Yeah, but uh, there was two-line foil, so it didn't have all the advantages of uh, current kites, of course. Yeah. And uh, it was a little bit problematic to relaunch those ones, but um, subsequently I got into fly surfer foils, and I love those because they're so easy to relaunch. Yeah. I mean, everyone thinks foils sink and all sorts of nightmares and kite mares, but um, my experience has been the opposite. And I've actually taught with them for uh, probably the last seven or eight years of my teaching, of running my school, and uh, the fact that, you know, if they're leading you edge down, you just pull on the back lines, reverse it up, and flip them over and let go, and off she flies. Away you go. So, uh, yeah, and plus the wind range, and, you know, I can get people going on five and six metre foils and... uh, out in the river and
0: chase them down the river on the jet was great. Perfect. And so you're, you're. we sort of jumped ahead a little bit there because of the East Timor story, but mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you a little bit because it's an interesting one. You know a lot of people in the forces who do these sports and yeah, yeah, whether yeah. they actually get to do it when they're on active duty is no, quite, a, no. quite an interesting one. But I expect you're probably yeah. busy. But yeah, if you get a chance to take your gear with you and you're in some amazing spot. Yeah. Well, again, if you're on military operations, you know, that's the focus. You haven't got
1: much recreational time at all. Yeah. What, what little time you do is usually trying to get your head down and
0: rest up. Yeah, get some sleep. Yeah, you so you were the first um, kiteboarder. We had a brief <laughs> chat before we started recording this, and you mentioned um, you know, Corey Roselow, who's sort of yeah. the, the father of yeah, well, using a kite-powered sport almost. So yeah, yeah. how did that all come about?
1: Yeah, well, when I was in Somalia, I uh, saw an American, uh, well, working with Americans over there, and there was a, a Newsweek magazine, I think it was, and it had a feature of him uh, water skiing on two skis. And this huge bar with a reel in the middle of it, and uh, it didn't actually picture the kite, but it said that he was being powered by a kite, and he was able to go upwind, and uh, he could relaunch this kite off the water. So uh, I managed to track him down in the days before Google, Yeah, and uh, corresponded with him, and uh, eventually bought one of his rigs out here in, I think it was 96, 97. And then started teaching myself in 98.
0: Well, okay. teaching other people. Yeah. yeah. And how did it go, the learning process with that? Because you mentioned you'd, you'd experimented a bit with kites before with your yeah. canoe and stuff like that. Yeah. So. Well, well, the, that was
1: going way back because, uh, as I said to you earlier, I've been flying hang gliders for 30 years. And uh, I always figured that there was a way of using a kite or a wing to, to get out to some of the further breaks down south, at, you know, about a kilometre offshore. And I figured rather than paddling a wave ski all the way out there, that if I had a kite, I might be able to get out and you know, a bit quicker. And um, so I made a little delta kite and put some kids floaties on the crossbar and put a little bit of sinker on the you know, wingtips so that when she crashed in the water, it'd sit vertical and catch the wind and take off again. So the concept actually worked. But uh, as I said, I was on wave skis in those days and there wasn't enough lateral resistance so I could never go up when so I pretty well gave it up as a bad joke, but that's when <laughs> I saw... You know, and that, that was in the 80s. Yeah, and that so, was the first kind of experience of, oh, there's a, something yeah, in this kite. Put power well, lot. Yeah. well, I'd been bugging with little three-wheelers, and uh, there was a guy called Neil Taylor who's still around, but sadly he suffered a stroke a few years ago, so he's out of action now, but... Um, he used to have one of the, the first kite businesses in Western Australia, and uh, they had a club three wheeler, so we used to muck around with that. So uh, and that was a really good way of learning, you yeah, know, the basic skills, of, yeah, yeah, and how to jibe and tack and all that sort of stuff. And uh, yeah, that no, was quite good fun in those days. But then then it was quite a few years until I'd actually seen a a, um, a kite magazine article about uh, Bruno Legano with a Whipper in I think it was in Hawaii or it might have been France, but anyway. I tracked down Bruno Lego, Legano as well, but he didn't have any commercial products. So uh, when I saw Corey Rosler in his magazine, and he was happy to sell us a rig. So uh, at the time, that was the first commercial stuff that was available on the market. So uh, yeah, excellent. but that came with a water ski. I was gonna. So, that was
0: my next question. So, what was your board craft that yeah, it came yeah, with? You know, yeah, well, you bought it from Corey. I should imagine. Yeah, yeah. yeah it wasn't.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, getting back to your first question, when I got the rig, it came with a VHS tape of showing me how to assemble the kite ski yeah. gear, and Corey and his wife Teresa doing it perfectly. And okay. that was it. So there was everything else was all trial and error, and so it got dragged up the beach a few times, and must have yeah. been quite a learning process. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I didn't even know what the wind range of the kite was, and so you didn't uh, you know, know how much wind you could put it no, up in, or what no, wind you needed. And, and I think he only had two sizes of kite. One was like a large and an extra large, or something. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely hit and miss. How did the real launch work? Um, basically, it had a disc brake. Yep. on the. Uh, on the reel itself and so you know when you were launching that obviously all the lines were inside the reel and uh, me being short arms I couldn't actually hold the kite away and be hooked in and hold the bar (laughs) all together so you had to basically throw it up the last you know metre or so and then it'd catch the wind and be flying you know two metres above your head and then you'd release the brake and it would take off vertically and then uh, every now and then the the brake would need adjustment and fail and go <laughs> screaming up at a great rate of knots. And uh, yeah, you get a bit of unintentional air on launch. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I was convinced for a long time that the real bar had a real future because in those days I couldn't picture enough beaches around the world that... that had that, enough space. Yeah, yeah, to lay the lines out. But, uh, you know, people have been pretty creative with how they, how how they can do, do it. it. And, you know, obviously launching off the water and off the back of boats and all sorts of other stuff that we do fairly routinely now. But, you know, it was all
0: new. And, yeah. yeah, well, back then, the real, real system sort of, you know, made a lot of sense, didn't it? You've got trees on the edge of a lake or whatever. You could just walk out to a exactly. tiny bit of beach. and yes. just start letting your kite out. Yeah. How did you actually get the kite back in again? Was there, like, a handle on it, or did you just crash no, it? No, no, you would never... There was too There's much no tension way. on the lines. Yeah.
1: And, again, it was... Uh, they were all two-line kites in those days. So, were, even though all the foils were all two-line, and, and certainly the Whippet was two-line as well when it came out about a year later and uh yeah so basically the answer to your question was that and and it's one of the things i really liked about the kiteski kite was it was very similar to a windsurfing rig if you like because it had a carbon fiber leading edge that you tensioned up just like rigging a a sail on a windsurfer and uh and one carbon spar down the the, uh, spine uh and just two lines on a, a pretty primitive sort of bridle but when you landed it on the edge of the window, it would just fall down and, and, and sit flat through. and just flap in the wind. So it never relaunched. And I remember the first time I, I got a Whipica, you know, being the first one in Australia, and there was no one to, to assist you or knew anything about kites. So, you know, self-launching and landing those things was, a, well, especially landing, because I, initially I used the reel bar to launch it. I thought that was the safest way of launching the Whipica. And, uh, you know, because a kite wouldn't just sit at the edge of the window like it does now. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was very interesting, <laughs> but, uh, especially the landing, and, you know, it wouldn't drop down on its loading edge like you can do now with kites. And, yeah, I had a number of times where I'd try and land it off to the edge of the window and it would roll and catch the wind and take off again. Yeah, yeah. well, I'd ditch it. But then the safety, because you're still tethered on one line, and it was just a wrist loose. And, uh, yeah, it was a nightmare. You know, this thing would be spiralling through and it and still drag. I mean, you know, it wasn't fully powered up, but it was enough to drag. It was friggin' dangerous. <laughs> so the only reliable way that I used to have of landing those kites in those days was, uh, was mainly kiting at, at Scarborough Beach. And on the pathways, there'd be dunes, and so i just drive it down into the lee of the dune and yeah. land it there. But, Put it uh, in a little wind pocket. Yeah. And but taking off was still problematic. Advantage. Yeah, you know, we used to put a bunch of sand on one wingtip and try and keep it there, and then go back and try and gently yeah, pull and it. pop the wingtip yeah, off, yeah, and, hope it and didn't pull the sand off and hope it didn't roll and backwards roll around. and
0: yeah. all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. And did you? Um, how did you get on with the water ski? Did you? Did you use that for a bit, or did you? Pretty I tried knee? to, but
1: again, because I was learning by trial and error, it was so problematic because you know I had a binding on the front foot. Yeah. So I'm hopping on one leg in you know sort of <laughs> knee deep water because trying to do a water start was almost. Impossible, yeah, because you'd be laying over on your side and trying to move the kite around and just get dragged upside down, and it was just a nightmare. And um, so, I went back to Murray Smith and Scarra and I uh, designed some towing boards, and so we adapted that with some foot straps and whatever, and and that worked out pretty well, yeah. Yeah. So, you kind of realized that the water ski wasn't the way to go, and yeah, for me, it wasn't because my my intention was always to get into the waves, it's just that you know, Corey didn't have any idea in those days of surfboards or whatever, so I thought, oh, well, his system works, So yeah, and plus I'll have a look at the surfboard, the dimensions and, and whatever, and, uh, sorry, the water, the water ski, ski engine, yeah, and see if that was applicable, at least we have some idea of what length and things like that. But, I mean, the first boards we made were uh, seven-foot guns, and, you know, they were basically a towing board, but reinforced decks and that yeah. sort of stuff, and... And that started yeah. to work pretty
0: well. Yeah, yeah.
1: In fact, um, when racing came on the scene, um, some of those boards, I think, actually won that lighthouse to Leighton Race. In really? the early, early days, yeah. They were pretty fast board, And uh, it turned all right, too. It had five fins, little bud fins at the front just to knock block the rail down. Yeah,
0: it worked pretty well. And you started um, sharing this passion that you discovered, didn't you? You were sort of getting yeah, well, other people into it. Like, well, you know, a lot of my windsurfing mates and whatever would
1: be seeing me and, you know, ask lots of questions or whatever. And then it was apparent to me that, you know, it was friggin' dangerous unless you knew what you're doing. And so people really need to get some lessons to not to have to go through that trial and error process that I was going through. And so, uh and I was transitioning to getting out of the army at that point. So I thought, well, I'll start a school up. And, and uh, yeah, I, I think I taught 2,000 odd people over 10 years. Wow. And uh, yeah. So Where was the school based? On uh, Pelican Point on the river, Swan okay. River in Perth. What was yeah. the name of it? Wind Designs Australia was what I called the company. Okay, yeah, yeah. but um, that was good fun, and I always enjoyed teaching people because invariably people came away with
0: uh, a bit of stoke and yeah, big on smile. The face. Yeah, yeah, and you know, that adrenaline rush. And, and I guess by getting other people into it, it meant you had someone to help you launch your kites as well. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, well, I, I'd sort of mastered as I said, I used the reel bar a lot. Yeah. So in those days,
1: that that, that was pretty safe and uh, also started using some pedal-in things. That it was a C-Quad, and yep, it was very similar, that. very similar design to the kite ski. And so, again, when you dropped it at the edge of the window, the leading edge would fall flat in the sand and it wouldn't take off again. So that was all pretty safe. But it took me a while to develop some confidence in the inflatable kites. But, uh, I mean, uh, to be honest, I personally got... Once the four-line kites came out, I started uh, uh, falling in love with... Well, in fact, it was... Um, concept air kites from canada that were used on the ice and snow but they had a closed leading edge with a, a, a one-way valve and uh yeah so i started using those but i developed a cleat system to do able to sheet it in and out okay and i end up selling that that system back to the canadians i oh, really <laughs> yeah. sold quite a few of them it was just an adapter kit that, yeah and essentially it allowed you to instead of flying on two line and uh, to be able to just trim pull, it but yeah trim the the the, uh, the trailing edge down a bit and whatever but I mean, it seems so obvious now to, to hook into the front lines and then use the bar to, to do that in real time. But again, it was all trial and error in those days and everything else was two-line. Yeah. But um, but we were flying like the C-quads on handles and with a little back strap and those sorts of things. So, uh, Yeah. Yeah, but of course, you didn't have the reel, so you know, yeah. launching those, you really need to have someone to assist you, or do, yeah, there was quite a bloody lines hot in those days as well, wasn't it? it was, um... Yeah, well, the kite ski originally came with, well, I think, it was fifty meter lines on the reel. It was, Shoot. yeah, <laughs> it's incredible when you look back on it. But quickly, yeah, learnt that we didn't need lines yeah. that long, and it was problematic. That, that's again why my, you know. Thinking was that shit, there's not enough beaches that are you know 50 meters yeah. of beach side shore to the wind. That's a big demand, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, again, I, my, my passion was wave riding, so I wanted shorter lines anyway, so I could wang the kite around whilst on a wave. So, how long was it before you started to get out into the waves with the kite? Uh, probably a year. Well, 98 uh, was yeah. when we well, would have gone out with Raphael Sales at Mainbrook yeah, and yeah. that was down so, in Margaret, Margaret River. River, yeah,
0: yeah. But I'd mucked around at Scarborough on beach breaks and things like that. But To uh, yeah. so actually get out into the big waves. And did yeah. um, when you met Raphael, was he over here with a group of people or was he just on his own? Uh, he, he had a out?
1: photographer and I think one other person. Yeah, so it was, No, actually it might have just been him and a photographer, I think. Okay. Yeah, and he had this two-line F1 foil. Yeah, I think I've got
0: photos of it somewhere. Yeah, that'd be good to see. Uh, I can ask Raph if he's got any history of it. so yeah, he's been yeah, digging yeah. through the history books lately, so looking at things. Yeah, and yeah. were you? I guess you were kind of, you know, the pioneer of kiteboarding in Western Australia, were people then starting to recognise you in that role and coming to you for information? And, you know, if uh, people travelling over here, were they like, oh, you've got to hook up with Ian Young and not really the low down? Uh, I don't think so. Well, I didn't feel that. I mean, I got a lot of
1: referrals to when I started teaching. To the school. So, yeah, and as I said, all that was, I didn't do any formal advertising. You know, it was all word of mouth. And, uh, yeah, well, initially I was the only school in Australia. So, yeah. uh, in fact, I... I was approached by people overseas, so I actually went to J- Okinawa, Japan to teach some American F-16 pilots wow. at a flight, oh, wow. and um, I'm trying to think, oh, yeah, there's some British people that were running uh, a, uh, an event in late 99, early 2000, it was the new sport of the new millennium, and that was going to be, well, we did, we all went to New Zealand to Gisborne, which is apparently the first place on the planet that was going to see the first light on the new millennium. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there's Flash Austin and Mauricio Alba and oh, wow. all, all, you know guys that were there that were all pioneers in their own places. And uh, so fortunate enough to be involved in that, but we didn't get any win. Oh. No, well, not, not, on the, <laughs> not on the day or the first day of the new year but uh, or the new millennium, but um, we did do a little bit of kiting out there. That's Like, I'm trying to think of the Bruce guy's name that sponsored it all. He was something in or whatever. I thought it was a good concert, and he was just getting into kite surfing himself. But um, yeah, I remember Flash had got this new 11 meter. <laughs> I, I think it might have been a Whipper. But it had a leak, so he's pumped this huge thing up on on the swimming pool or whatever. I think because we're all on like seven Well, again the the, the, the system of measuring kites has changed a fair bit since then. then wasn't wasn't it, wasn't yeah, yeah, But we we're all on five to seven meter kites. Which and, were sort of probably around the 12 size yes, today, probably. really. In yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Because yeah. they use projected area yep. instead of flat cut and all that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah. But yeah, those are the good old days. Yeah. And so Flash got his 11 out and had a leak in it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but it was all pretty good. Uh, yeah.
0: Excellent. Did you do much travelling with it? Did you like go? Obviously, you've mentioned New Zealand and Asia, but did you do much of that to go and you know discover wave spots or anything like that? A little
1: bit. But I was um, I worked with the Kiteboard Professional World Tour for a while. Initially, they approached me to go and be a judge in New Caledonia. Okay, and then. basically rocked up there and the, didn't like the guy who was actually running it. Yeah. Well, they had problems with him and so uh, I got moved from judge to uh, race director. So, yeah, I was a race director for the, them for three years. Okay. So pretty well traveled all over the world. Yeah, that running, must have been a good, good gig for going to different spots. Yeah, and... but I mean, it's pretty stressful being the race director and obviously you're there to run the event. Yeah. So, yeah, you yeah the focus to really and... is on the draws and the conditions and alternate plans and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it was pretty full on, and I often didn't get much chance to kiteboard myself. But yeah, certainly got to see lots of different spots, and to be honest it just makes you appreciate home more Yeah, mean I mean that is lucky here that was <laughs> my
0: next question was you know back home in mm-hmm. Western Australia and that's one of my favourite places in the world we're currently mm-hmm. sat in Lancelin which I rate as my favourite kite spot on the planet yeah, I've been yeah. to loads mm-hmm. so I guess that's a difficult thing isn't it you know when you're living here there's not yeah. much reason to go anywhere else you know <laughs> exactly. we <laughs> yeah. were speaking to Matt well, over at the lodge he went to Sri Lanka and I was asking yeah. him how his trip was because he yeah. asked me me to sort of if I knew anyone over there so I yeah, hooked yeah. him up with um, Fabio and Greg so and he said he had a great time he goes oh the kiting wasn't that good and i'm like yeah. well matt you're you live in like you know <laughs> <Old> primo <laughs> yeah the best spot so yeah. everywhere you go is never going to be quite as good yeah. as back home well quite often when i travel you know i don't
1: bother taking kite. i mean even when i go to perth i don't bother taking my kite gear up there because you know beach
0: breaks are pretty crappy compared to the roof
1: breaks. yeah have got it yeah south so, passage
0: is a pretty mm. incredible spot isn't it
1: yeah and main break i and mean there's lots break. of lots of spots and even edward island you know there's not lots of nice waves depending on the the tide and the conditions and how long was it before you discovered
0: you know up here lancelin when did you find this place Uh,
1: well it would have been uh, 20 odd years ago okay um i first got invited here by the organizers of the what used to be the ledge to lancelin windsurfing race in those days um and uh they asked me to come out and just do a demo in front of it because it was run by the tavern essentially. Yeah. And so there was the best party in Western Australia at the tavern those days. And uh, yeah, so whilst after the race, people wanted some entertainment. So yeah, I basically you know, did some jumps and back loops and bits and pieces and out in front of the tavern. Excellent. And, uh, that's and that was your first taste of Lancelin? Yeah. You know, I'd, I think I'd been up here once before, but not to kite. Yeah. Uh, well, when I was in the army, we went to the range. Yeah. Up here, there's a bombing range just north of town, but uh, yeah, I hadn't really been. Out surfing here or anything, most of the time I went surfing and went
0: down south. Yeah,
1: Margaret mm. Riverway.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of neck of the woods. So, how was mm. it when you started discovering the breaks around here? Was it kind of an eye opening moment? Well, like, wow, there's potential. Oh well, well, you know, wind surfers have been surfing the breaks here and surfers have been surfing the breaks
1: here for ages, but uh, I just like the vibe of the place. And, and in those days, you know, I was probably when I was first um, kiting, you know, it was I wasn't into the waves, you know, it was flat water stuff you know, until I got my skills up. Were still doing a few walks of shame in those days. <laughs> as I said, they were all two-line kites, so you know, even getting back to your board was problematic, and because uh, you could, just couldn't shoot them out enough, yeah, to, to then go up the wind, yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, it probably was. Well, I, I was mucking around in Scarborough beach breaker after about a year or so, but uh, not the serious reef breaks that we've got here. That would have been another probably three or four years or so after, yeah, that. when the kits got a bit better and yeah, yeah and it probably easier. was about the same time that
0: four-line kites uh, were. Uh, definitely, yeah, basically the only thing you get then. And have you always been kind of making your own boards and stuff like that? Because you've, um, you've got some interesting ones laying around. Yeah, well, they're not all mine. <laughs> I mean,
1: uh, yeah, I put a post on Seabreeze and the windsurfing surfing and kite surfing forums and sort of said if anyone's got any old busted boards that they want to get rid of, chuck them up my way. And, you know, I've been doing sculpture since I was about 18. And uh, so, yeah, I was interested in doing some sculpture projects and, as you mentioned, the board fence was one of them, and, yeah. and I don't know if you've seen the yeah, you've spiral the shower. shower outside and yeah, a few other bits and pieces. I've got a couple of other plans for the ones that are planted along the side there later on. Yeah, so and things to do
0: with them. It's yeah. Quite- and yeah. um, yeah. did the art kind of come around that sort of time? Have you always been artistic? or was this Yeah, for, well, after my father got out of the army, he gave me a set of uh, wood
1: chisels, and so I started you know, doing wood carvings. But, uh, you know, I I had a distinct simplified style you know i wasn't interested in fancy intricate stuff i just like essential elements of um you know curves and waves and chicks and you know, all that sort <laughs> all of all sort of things that boys yeah like. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah that's right yeah so um and then not you know i had friends and family that had asked me to do pieces for you know christmas presents or wedding presents and things like that so um then well this is all during my military career in, in my spare time and bits and pieces so um uh, yeah, then I started to sell it through galleries and bits and pieces. So yeah, I've been in sculpture by the sea at Cottesloe on one one occasion. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, a couple of little exhibitions
0: and things like that. But, I guess yeah. it's just a good way to sort of spend some time. You're producing something. It's yeah, yeah. quite relaxing. It you is very it. cathartic. Yeah. yeah, and particularly during those military days, you know, it's
1: uh, there's not too much creativity happening in military, and so uh, yeah, it was a nice outlet, as you say, to have something to show for you. Your Effort at the end of it, yeah, and uh, yeah, you no, know, I basically was doing it for myself. Although, you know, I do get commissions, but um, you know, that when people ask me to do a lifelike representational of their pet dog or, <laughs> or someone's face or whatever, I, I give those things the flick, you know? yeah, but I'm not, not, interested, <laughs> not into but, that. No, nah. well, for me, that that's a mechanical process, I like the creativity side of it coming up
0: with completely new and different shapes, and yeah, yeah. And you're working with a bit of bronze that you were showing me earlier. How? Yeah. yeah when did you start getting into that?
1: Uh, yeah, it's probably hmm, 15, 20 years ago now. Okay.
0: Yeah, so I, I had some
1: small um, clay pieces, in fact, and then people wanted them, but then clay, you know, obviously it was ceramic, so if you drop it, you smash it and whatever. And then I can't remember exactly how I got in, but I started to hunt around to see if I could get a mould off it and... Uh, and then pour waxes and then maybe give them to a foundry and whatever. So, uh, yeah, I end up working along that. And then I found that for the amount of time that I invest in, whether it's bronze or timber, it's it, taking about the same amount of time to actually finish a piece. So, uh, yeah, I, I found that people were willing to pay a lot more for a bronze, but it cost me obviously more money yeah to, to, to make, to make produce it, it. Yeah, yeah. To, to pay the foundry and things like that. But then there was definitely a premium on top of that. And plus, you know, it's a piece of art that, that is multi-generational, so people should see that as an investment. And, uh, you know, that after they've died... Still you know, going to be around. Yeah, and you can have your house burnt down, you'll lose all your paintings and your all your prints. bronzes will still be there. Yeah, you probably you lose your computer with all your digital art and yeah. all that sort of stuff, but the bronzes will probably yeah, still be Stand there. Stand the test of time. Amongst the
0: ashes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, they'll be, be around forever almost, won't they? Yeah, I mean, yeah.
1: pretty well. Well, you know, that's uh, some of the art that we've still got from the, the Greeks and Romans and... Is all the bronzes? Yeah, yeah
0: so it stand the test of time. Mm. And you obviously live up in Lancelin now. When did you make the move to to sort of you know be up here sort of permanently? Yeah, about six or
1: seven years ago. I got divorced, and this was an investment property, come holiday home. And uh, you know, it, at the time, the market was pretty depressed, well, it still is. And so, and I was doing a lot of fly in, fly out all over the world. So uh, it really didn't matter where I lived. Yeah. Uh, as long as I get to the airport, it's only 90 minutes from the airport. Yeah, here. it's pretty easy. Isn't so, it? yeah, I thought, oh, I won't sell up, I'll just hang around here. And then I got involved with the local community. I uh, volunteer firemen and do volunteer marine rescue stuff. And uh, yeah, got involved with the local community. And as we were talking earlier, All primo for kite surfing, so yeah, it's not a bad spot. (laughs) You want to go out in the summertime, is it? It's always windy. Yeah, although I do find myself getting fussy. I mean, there's a nice swell in running today, but you know, it's a bit overcast and. The wind's a little bit
0: gusty, and so I'll wait until tomorrow. Yeah, well, you've got that advantage, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do yeah. you still you know, get the same buzz? You've been kitesurfing longer than most people. Mm. You know, One of the or- originals in Australia and mm. started in sort of 96, 97. Do you mm. still get that same buzz from kitesurfing when you go out now? Um, in big waves, yeah. But,
1: uh, I mean, yeah, it's one of those catch uh, You know, I, As I was saying, I'm more fussy yep. with when I'll go out, so I am looking for, obviously, something bigger than head-high waves. Um, yeah, so if it's only waste oil some, you know, crap like that, I, I couldn't be bothered. And uh, the only other thing I do is like, you know, the Lancelin classic race and stuff like that. I don't mind that; that's a bit of fun. But that's again probably more a result of of history. My original involvement with yeah. coming to Lancelin and what have been. I've only one year that I've missed out and raced. You've raced every, and, every uh, year but one. Yeah, yeah. And I've won quite a few times. So <laughs> <laughs> that's always nice. i got a few well, i my age ca- category nowadays. <laughs> but
0: uh, in the early days, I was winning outright. But yeah. And um, how did you get involved in that kind of racing? Because you, you mentioned you got some pretty specific boards for that sort of thing. Was yeah. that something that you were working on developing for the race, or was it just something um, that you kind of just found a board that went pretty quick? Yeah, yeah, it?
1: the board was more about... Well, I was concerned if the board was too small that, you know, it would take too much effort to get the thing planning. And uh, it was really funny because I've never been into twin tips. And so uh, in the early days, the only other people I was involved with were windsurfers. And they were saying the seven foot boards were way too small. And uh, and then, of course, twin tips came out and people say your boards are way too big. And it's really interesting to see the evolution. But uh, because my background and interest is, is way riding and surfing, I always surf in a natural stance. So I'm yep. always leading with my, my left foot. So, uh, you know, toe side riding has never really been an issue for me, whereas, you know, obviously when you... First, learning the twin tips are nice to be able to stay on your heels the whole time and stop and slide. But I've always been into carving turns anyway, so uh, yeah, it was always directional, always directional surfboards and using those and yeah, on those. You know, I did a fundraiser, I think it was four years ago, and kitesurfed from Scarborough to Exmouth, 1,300 kilometres over 13 days. Yeah, I heard about that. And That's um, pretty
0: intense. Like, yeah, was what, a, what, was the, what was the thinking behind that? Where did it come from? Well, I've, I've been
1: doing as money from Perth to Lancelin, so it's 120-odd k's. How long would that take you, Perth to Lancelin? <laughs> uh, well, the first time we did it was with a group, and we decided we'd stay together as a group, and I think that took us six, seven hours. Because you've always but, got to go at the pace of the slowest person. Yeah, and to be honest, it, it wasn't a good way to go. So the second time I did it, I thought I'd just do it myself. I think I did about three hours. Wow, three, three or four hours. yeah. That's pretty quick. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we were every, well, when I did the the, the run up to Exmouth, um we had I had a tracker, so it actually could show you the location every, every ten minutes. There was an update. And um, so you know, we raised, it, I think, twenty fifteen and eighteen thousand dollars for wow. Soldier On, which was uh, you know exceeded my expectations. But I think a lot of it was because people were fascinated, you know, looking, looking at the red dot. <laughs> yeah, yeah where's minutes. he got to? <laughs> where's he going? Yeah, yeah, but be- because it tracked ten minutes part, you know, I could be tacking, so it didn't show a true representation of the distance covered. But uh, going into Carnarvon, I think was the fastest update, and that was seventy kilometers an hour on the wow. flat, flat water inside the mangroves, yeah. Wow. So, uh, but most of the time I'd be cruising between 20 and 30 kilometres an hour. Yeah. And, uh, and how long did that take? But then again, you? when there was a good wave, I'd stop and, stop play, and, and play. play. Yeah, play for 10 or 15 minutes and then move on. And so, it took
0: you 13 days. Did you have support crew on the land that were driving up? Yeah. So you'd so they stop were at night and, and, yeah. and just come into the beach? And yeah. At that point, I mean, there must be places where you can't come in. You must get to dangerous bits, which is just cliffs, and you've got well, to yeah, get around that.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, certainly up around Nalu and, uh, well, south of Nalu and whatever, you've got Red Bluff and all those. But, I mean, to be honest, most of those places you could get ashore if you have to, but there would be yeah. a risk depending on the swell running. But we didn't do one section uh, near the Zidoff Cliffs, which okay. is north of, uh, well, we stopped at Port Gregory, and then we restarted because it was three or four days where they were forecasting three or four metre swell in oh, wow. 30 to 40 knots. So, and so It was either stay at Port Gregory and wait for the conditions to obey, plus my safety plan depended on the volunteer marine rescue people and the local crayfishing, and they said, well, we're not going out for three days. No, so, because it's too dangerous. Yeah so, yeah, so it was either sit and wait or jump ahead, and uh, yeah, we decided we'd jump ahead and use that 30 knots from shark Bay. But that that what started me on that story was uh, toe side riding yeah so going across the top of Shark bay there was two legs of about 40 and 50 Ks each on the toe side just but, on the toe side yeah but you know to me it's just cruising and Easy. one-handed riding and yeah you know, especially in 30 40 nights you just park the kite and go yeah just follow it so it's not when you're tacking upwind and pulling a lot of pressure and you know your board's just on the plane and but it was awesome part of the country because a lot of that Shark bay area is... Really shallow, and yeah. So and just beautiful, isn't it? Stunning, absolutely stunning. And to be honest, it you know, it's probably one of the few ways you get into some of those places because there's no roads in there. Uh, the only other way I can think would be a helicopter because it's too shallow for a prop boat, yeah, or even a jet ski. And uh, even then, there was times where I'd hit a, a sandbar because you know I've got a draft of two centimeters when I'm on the plane on the edge of yeah. the board. And I'd still clip a fin and bloody come arse over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go from seventy k's to nought, very yeah, nought. Yeah. Well, I wasn't yeah. doing seventy k's then. Yeah. No, I wouldn't be doing seventy k's unless I knew
0: yeah. that I wasn't it gonna safe. Hit yeah, you're not uh, going to get hung up. Yeah, um, yeah. How did the How did the support crew d- deal with it? Because they must have been having to do some serious off roading. To, yeah, to yeah. Well, there was t- two nights that they didn't catch up with me. Really? And, uh,
1: yeah. Well, they, they had coming out of Nalu they blew two tires, so they had to actually get new tires brought up from Geraldton. Oh and, wow, uh, that's but, a long drive from Geraldton to Nalu, So waiting for that, so a yeah. chunk of time. Well, I was they actually did it pretty quickly. It was uh, it was two nights that, yeah. that, that 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 I didn't catch up with them because of that. But um, the tracker I had had a text receive and transmit capability, but it was very difficult to t- cack something out on the water. So I pretty well have to come to the beach. But most of the time, I you know I was surfing on the beach breaks. Yeah, and, so you went far on the out. Or, yeah, yeah, I never went more than probably four hundred meters offshore anyway. Okay, and, so you um, just hug the coast on the yeah, way yeah, around, and played in the waves and whatever. But uh, and, and so plus that's, that's the spectacular scenery as well. It was only those two long sections going across Shark Bay, where you've got you know big peninsulas coming up and open water between them, but pretty flat. Yeah, but as I said, it was 30, 40 knots, so there was a bit of wind swell. Even in the Shark Bay on that particular day,
0: yeah, because it gets but, windier the further up you go, doesn't it? It seems to anyway. Well, I've yes certainly towards Geraldton way. Of, yeah, is my experience as a general
1: so. rule. Yeah, but a Shark Bay is one of those weird places because the water's so shallow, it, it's a lot warmer, and uh, so, you, so don't you don't get, get the same sea breeze, breeze differential. Yeah, and and I actually got becalmed on that same day, just north of Cape Perrin. And uh, the kite was literally in the water, and there's weird currents as it comes up the Monkey Mire and the Denham side and mixes, and Cape Perrin itself is cliffs. So when I got to Cape Perrin on the uh, the southern side of it, or the western side of it, I thought, well, do I want to call it quits there, but I'd had such a good run, and it had been consistent 30 knots. We launched about 8 o'clock in the morning in wow. 30 knots. And uh, I thought, well, do I keep going or do I call it quits? And I thought, oh, well, look, conditions are great. I'll, I'll keep pushing through and, and end up getting through the Canaarman. So that was almost 200 k's that day. But, um, yeah, I got just north of Cape parent and all of a sudden the 30 knots just petered out to nothing. I had the kite in the water and the current's bringing the kite towards me and I'm trying to kick back and get some tension <laughs> on the way, lines. You yeah. not get tangled up. Uh, and, you know, it was only a little six-metre kite. And uh, But, yeah, then a little bit of wind rocked up and that's again the beauty of the foil is they just sit there like a bubble yeah. and uh, as soon as you get a little bit of tension just yank on the front line and up she comes and yeah Manage to keep going
0: well, we'll it, just I get... still
1: sat in the water with the kite flying but the but kite pieces. was only in the water for 10 or 15 minutes I suppose but uh, the challenge was dealing with the current and trying to keep tension on the lines and all that, and some, some big fish around there too. So yeah, you know. <laughs> I was going to say
0: there must have been a few. In, well, did you see any while you were out and about?
1: Yeah, yeah, mainly uh, a little
0: like little two meter
1: sharks and stuff like that, particularly around Shark Bay because it's so shallow you can see them for miles. You know, they're yep, But uh, you, you know they would hear because you know I'm obviously moving pretty quick on that flat water as well, and the board just goes chattering uh, Yeah, all. yeah, and, and even the shadow of the kite it got anywhere near them they're off yeah like a of hell yeah but no it was, uh, the, the really spectacular sea life was up around Ningaloo though N- Nalu on, on, north and you know turtles everywhere and in fact I was really worried I was going to hit a turtle because there's so many so many of them yeah and you know they're often having a look around yeah but then pop up but then uh, they they'll they hear you coming and so by the time you you know getting about 10 meters away from them they're away yeah and uh, yeah yeah And the two nights that you missed the support crew, were you just having to kip on the beach? Yeah, well, you know, they don't call foil kites donors for nothing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you actually used it as a sleeping bag. Well, well, I did the first
1: (laughs) night. It's quite an interesting story. The guys used to try and get ahead of me if they could and use a a military signal mirror so that as I'm coming along the coastline, I could see where they were. So if I needed to change my kite or, you know, get anything or do anything, that I could find them easy enough. Uh, But I Only used that about th- two or three times to be honest. Most of the time, they were chasing me, yeah. And um, anyway, so I'd, yeah, long story I broke a harness. Oh, no, so, yeah, so <laughs> That's not um, good. yeah, the stitching came part of the hip. And so, that I'd gone to the beach, you know, I was flying a 19 meter foil that day, it was pretty light winds. And uh, anyway, got everything to the beach. Oh, I managed to relaunch the kite, but of course, I'm Hold it on to the chicken. Yeah, got, the, got the trimmed right the way in and trying to fly it one-handed and that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, nine 90-meter kite's still got a bit of grunt in one hand. Proper so, uh Yeah, but got to got to the beach and, you know, you'd think there'd be a bit of cray rope or, you know, something. an old fence line or something that I could jury-rig it and get it going. But, uh, nah, the most pristine beach in Australia. <laughs> so, anyway, <laughs> bottom line is I managed to use my, my kite leash to jury-rig it to take a little bit of the pressure. But I, I couldn't take the, the full pressure of the kite and the harness anymore, so I had to take most of my arms. But it was getting quite late in the afternoon, and because we left quite late from Nalu, I think three or four o'clock in the afternoon. So I only had an hour or two that I was going to be able to kite, and then that happens. But anyway, managed to get going, because I'm trying to find somewhere where the boys can get to me. Yeah. And that's the day they got their two flats. Anyway, I go around this corner, and I see this flashing sort of light, but it didn't seem right it did because normally they do it in a fairly regular rhythm, rhythm yeah and so it was, it was, was fairly nice bright and whatever and this wasn't quite right anyway well, oh thank God there's the boys yeah and uh, anyway I got to the beach and the sun was setting and so the sun's behind me and it was a guy on the beach taking photos and it was reflecting off his lens. No, really? And so, anyway, I went to this guy he was from <laughs> South Australia. He said he was trying to find the most remote beach in Australia he And, could find, and the, yeah, he's like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's a really nice young bloke, and they had a couple of nice bottles of red. Oh, so, so that was the first night without my crew. <laughs> oh, that was all right then. So literally, <laughs> but, but I, of... I did have to rug up in my <laughs> yeah. kite as the doer in the
0: middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, find yeah, the yeah. other old lone Australian out yeah. there trying to be yeah. in the wilderness. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Anyway, so
1: he had some some bits of rope and whatever so I managed to jury rig the harness to get myself to Coral Bay the next day and That's when I got the text message from them that told me what happened. Because I I said, Scott, well, you know, the guys will ping off on my location. Yeah. And I know where I am. So if a car rocks up with headlights in the middle of the night, it's my crew. Yeah. But anyway, they never
0: rocked up. (laughs) So (laughs) then. then How do you feel getting up the next morning thinking, well, I'm setting off. I haven't seen my crew. I don't know where they are. Like, is this. Well, the bottom line
1: it was out of my control anyway. Yeah. So, uh, and, and it wasn't just like from a safety perspective. That location was also, you know, uh, available on the map. Yeah. So I had people in Perth that were also tracking. What's your people been? in Carnarvon. Um, so there was a whole, and people in Geraldton and whatever, they were all monitoring. So even like that time I spent in the water up north of Cape Perrin, I knew that people knew that I'd stopped. Yeah. And so. that, that they'd started working up a plan. So they're probably talking to uh, Sea Rescue and, and um, Denham and uh, Monkey Mire. And uh, starting to look at options. Yeah. And But uh, as I said, I was only stationary for probably 15 minutes or so. So uh, You've got that back up. Yeah. So then the next
0: night on your own, did you meet another Australian with a nice well, bottle of red or not? No. <laughs> well, almost as good.
1: Yeah, well, well, I went through to Coral Bay and I got there fairly early, but I thought, no, I need to get myself another harness. And uh, anyway, so I, I, I pulled in at the boat ramp because you're not allowed to actually kite in Coral Bay proper. And, uh, and packed up, and a, and a guy gave me a lift into the pub. And, you know, I had 50 bucks cash on me, so I thought oh, I'll treat myself to a couple of beers, sit by the pool, and wait for the boys to rock up. And that's when I got the text message and said, Oh, we're not going to make it tonight either. So, oh, okay. Well, the last time I was in Coral Bay, there was a, a local guy that kited, so I thought I'd try and track him down. But um, he'd actually moved on, but there was another guy that was a kiter and uh, runs the uh, Mandaray business in town. And uh, so, anyway, I, 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 I obviously, just in a wetsuit. Yeah. And I left my gear at the pub. So I'll, I'll wander, wander into a shop in a wetsuit and say, You're Young, are you? <laughs> I've been following you on Seabreeze. Oh, really? So, watching yeah. watching yeah. you walk up the road. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I turned the tracker off at of that stage. I didn't, didn't want people to be you know, yeah, coming into the, the pub. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, he, his wife was in Exmouth at the time. So uh, I. He very kindly shared uh, his kid's bed with him, oh, awesome. <laughs> so I had a proper bed that night, and uh, yeah, I think I had a couple of bucks left over to uh, share him with pizza, <laughs> brilliant, <laughs> and another beer. Yeah, so uh, that, that was the two nights I had in the whole trip without the crew, and, um, so landed on my feet that one. That's fantastic!
0: Mm. It's an amazing experience. Have you ever got mm. plans to do something similar or something bigger, or do you nah, think? No, not really. Well, a couple of years now.
1: after that, I. Uh, had problems with my hip. It wasn't as a result of that. It's actually from an accident I had in the military. But I had to have a total hip replacement. So okay. well, that slowed me down a little bit. So, you know, don't do any big air or jumps or tricks or anything like that. Just cruise and wave right. Relaxing into Although it a little bit more. Last year, or this year, 2018, in January, when we have the Lotion Classic, I, I did manage to win the over 55s That's three, three months after my surgery. So three months after <laughs> a hip replacement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. But And I was taking it pretty easy, but. To be honest, the, the real reason was that we got launched by the race director, in Annan Easterly, and uh, yeah, a lot of people were kites in the water and whatever, and as I said, one of the advantages of the foils, they do relaunch pretty easily. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I was able to get going a lot earlier than other people. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I think all of the guys in the over-55... The division beat all the guys in there over fifties. Oh, so really? we're all
0: pretty stoked. We oh. reckon we should got double prize money. Yeah, we'll have your prize money as well. We've yeah, done yeah. all right. <laughs> yeah, that didn't happen. And <laughs> you've had a you know long association with the Lance and Ocean Classic. Are You looking mm. forward to this year's event? Are you going to be racing? Yeah, again? for sure. Yeah, I'll race again. Well, you know, I'll be cruising. Yeah, <laughs> but you'll be out there. Yeah, I'm hoping so. Yeah, yeah, excellent. That's the plan. Yeah. <laughs> and how often do you say you reckon you go kiting? You're quite fussy these days, but yeah. do you get out a few times a week, or. Oh, probably I'd say a few times a fortnight,
1: yeah. but uh, I mean, climate change is real. You know, it's just a weird day, you know. Yeah, we I mean, we don't have weather like this here in summer. It's just I woke up this morning and I was just couldn't believe it. I was like, it's grey and cloudy. Like, yeah, I've yeah. never been here and it's been yeah, it was and raining cloudy. last night, and yeah, it's just weird. Yeah, normally from, you know, October, November onwards, you don't see any more rain and blue skies like it was yesterday. Yeah. So I did go for a cruise yesterday, but uh, that was weird too, because normally once a sea breeze comes in, it'll, you know. It'll it stays st- in. St- and it'll fill in.
0: And uh, But yesterday it was like 12, 13 knots most of the time. So it was a bit light. I guess this is the worrying thing, isn't it, is that you have these spots that are so regular, mm. you know, and you could have come here ten. 10- Fifteen years ago, and the yeah, wind yeah. is like clockwork. Right, you can set sure. your watch by it, and yeah, you know, yeah. just whoop, in it comes and the yeah. it goes, and it's kind of a real eye opener that these spots are all changing. Yeah, you know, there's so many people in these spots, and they're like, "Well, it's not as windy as it was last year. Yeah, and yeah. It's not as good as it has been." And it, like you say, it's isn't effect just the climate's changing for sure. Yeah, I think that the
1: mistake that you, you know the people have made is calling it global warming because it's not necessarily warming, but it's definitely changed, and you know to suggest that it's not created by humans i think it's just so naive it's crazy but anyway i think we need to clean up the planet a bit
0: more yeah we're definitely trashing it that's for sure yeah i guess it was a good good example of recycling with all the surfboards oh, hell yeah. <laughs> better, better than being in landfill mate yeah, 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 yeah. exactly make mm-hmm. some art out of them do yeah. something with it yeah them. exactly yeah, repurpose yeah. things and uh, for sure make stuff a lot better we should be doing a lot more of that that's for sure yeah mm. so what's the future hold
1: for you in more um, night surfing, more sculpture. Yeah, yeah, just more of the same. You know, I'm pretty well semi retired now. So, yeah, just take each day as it comes. And I find that, you know, well, since I got out of the army in 99, you know, you get all sorts of opportunities and stuff. And I, was, I got a gig down at Augusta Margaret River not so long ago, just working with the Singapore police force doing adventure training, basically. Oh, wow. And, uh, and then I got a two day gig in Hong Kong. Doing some emergency management. So, yeah, there's
0: no, all don't sorts don't of
1: stuff do. that comes up all the time. And, you know, Sweet. I'm working on about three or four commissions at the moment. But, uh, yes, but I should be doing them now. <laughs> <laughs> I, know. Well, I think some of those that people wanted them for Christmas, but I told them
0: unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on the wind and, yeah, uh, you yeah, know, yeah. other, other e- factors exactly. that will come in, depends on whether it gets done on time. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, look, Ian, that's been really interesting to chat to you. Oh, like Thank watching. you very much indeed for your time. No worries, mate. Yeah, that's fantastic. There we go. Episode 16, done and dusted. I hope you enjoyed that one. I really enjoyed chatting to Ian. It was um, an interesting experience. That's the first time I've done a podcast with someone who I've not really known that much about and actually hadn't done that much research on before I sat down with him. So I hope you enjoyed it. Um, without writing down any questions beforehand, I think we managed to have a really good conversation and we ended up getting on some interesting topics. I especially like the tales of his um, huge kite surf from Perth up to Exmouth, which is monumental. And the fact that he almost covered, you know, 200 kilometres in one day and was sleeping in his kites at night and um, met some interesting characters along the way. I've got another episode lined up for you next week. I'm not going to spoil the suspense by telling you who it is, but I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Hopefully you have a great week. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. And as ever, tell your friends about it down the pub, spread the word and let everybody know. You've been listening to the Intriguing Beings podcast with me, Roo Chater. Have a great week.